And our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, we're in verses 1 through 10 after a couple of strange weeks, intermittent weeks, a couple of weeks away from the letter to the Ephesians, we're back in it, and we have a very famous and familiar passage in front of us this morning. Young Christians, young theologians, we're going to talk about the verses that we're about to read through, but we're also going to talk about another Bible story. See if you can hear what Bible story we'll be using to talk about these ten verses. And if you want, see if you can find it in your own Bible. See if you can locate the story in your Bible that we'll be talking about as we go through our passage this morning. This is the good news, and our hearts are small and fearful and tired And often they don't want to hear the good news. Our hearts want to find a way to justify themselves, to work off our debt and our wrong. But Jesus won't have it. And so hear the good news of the Savior once again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. And O Lord our God, we are thankful that Jesus the Savior was willing to sit and eat with sinners and tax collectors, and doubters and deniers and deserters of all kinds. And He loved them called them, and pulled them close to himself. You've done the same with many of us here, maybe most of us here. But we're slow to believe and our hearts are small. And the things that we know, we love to forget and deny. So once again, O Lord, open your grace to us. Teach us and show us how deep rich and vast and unturning is the love with which you love us. And if you'll do all of these things for us, we will rejoice in your love and we will give you thanks. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? What if Lazarus never came out of his tomb? What if when Jesus called him, Lazarus, come out, 
And his eyes snapped open, and daylight flooding in from the tomb's open door was seeping through the burial strips wrapped around his head. What if, when his dead body jolted to life with a gasping breath, and when the coughing fit subsided, what if he laid back down and played dead? Or better yet, what if, When Lazarus was called to life by Jesus standing just outside his tomb, what if he got up from the burial slab and he walked stiffly to the door and he pulled away just enough of the burial cloths from his caked lips and he stood in the open doorway arguing with Jesus, trying to blink away the sunlight. Jesus, go away. You can't help me like this. I don't believe it. It'll never work. You don't have the strength to do this for me. Thankfully, that's not the story. When Jesus called Lazarus out of his tomb, Lazarus came out like a man on fire. And he laughed, and he cried, and he fell into the arms of Jesus again and again, and he ran around the crowd kissing people, whether he knew them or not, with a kiss that was still just a little too corpsey for comfort. To be clear, Lazarus didn't experience a brush with death. It wasn't a near miss. Screeching tires and crunching metal and shattered glass, maybe a roll of the car or two, and then inexplicably, he kicks the driver's side door open and walks away without a scratch. He can't stand at the site of the accident and shudder for what could have happened. There's nothing to shudder for because it did happen. In the prime of his life, Lazarus was cut off from the living. And when he came walking out of the tomb, it's not that he escaped death. He escaped nothing. He was swallowed by death all the way down the gullet. And death was forced to choke him back out again. Because Jesus called for him... Lazarus could come out like an hysterical mummy turning somersaults and cartwheels and sending peals of his own laughter to turn somersaults and cartwheels of their own inside his cavernous echoing tomb. Grace calls and faith comes out. By grace you were saved through faith. It's remarkable, really. Everything that we've read in the first chapter of Ephesians, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His name is above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in every age to come. And all of that's played out in the story of Lazarus. Now, Paul opens chapter 2 by calling us by a name that we're not used to hearing in reference to ourselves. He calls us Lazarus. And it's a name that fits. You were dead in trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. Not a near miss. Not a brush with death. You weren't on your way to dying under your trespasses and sins. You were gone. 
The time of death had already been called on you. And you were like every other dead thing. You couldn't undo your own deadness. You couldn't kick through it or rise up out of it or will it or wish it away. You were swallowed up and sinking deeper and deeper into its belly. Until grace called for you. Just like Jesus showed up outside the tomb of Lazarus and called for him. You were called out of death too. You know what Paul's saying here. You were physically alive while you were living or walking in the condition of under the power of death in your hearts. You were willing and wanting and doing what was against what God willed and did. And following the prince of the power of the air, Paul says, you were following the heart of Satan, the cosmic saboteur of holiness and goodness and grace. But even he is one of the powers put under the feet of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1. And so is the power of a dead heart that can't shake off its deadness. And Jesus stands on the necks of these imprisoning powers that drag us away from the love of God, what you were designed for. Jesus stands on the necks of these hateful enemies and he calls you to walk out from under them. And this is grace, Paul is saying. This is the famous passage that outlines for us our understanding of what grace is. But I wonder if you heard Paul's definition. Grace is dead things made alive. Now you can do a lot of verbal, conceptual gymnastics to come up with a definition that's much more technical and much more theologically detailed, one that's more intelligent sounding. But I'm sure you won't get any closer to grace than that. Grace is dead things made alive. I've had a lot of friends who have done winter treks through snowy mountainous passes. And they say that smart trekkers carry with them radio transmitters in case they're buried and lost in an avalanche where the weight of snow breaks like a crystallized ocean surf and plummets down the mountain face. Now, if you've never lived in the snow, if you've never had the privilege of having to work, to move against it, just to be able to live, if you've never had to displace it in order to get around. And an avalanche might sound like something of a puzzle to you. Why can't you just burrow your way out of it? Because the physics are against you. There's something about the mass and the weight and the speed of the snow as it moves and the structure of the snowflakes. It produces a friction that turns it to an instant cement, an instant tomb. And the more I think of my sin and the more I live with my sin, the more it feels like that to me. Heavy and fast and willful and not at all hesitant to bury me and pin me so I can't dig out of it. But grace 
is the authoritative will of Jesus calling out in His voice and calling off from me all of that unbearable weight so I can breathe and move and live willfully unburied again. Why would He do it? Why would Jesus do something like this? Why, for example, would he stand outside Lazarus' tomb and call him back to life? Was it a prophecy? Was it a sermon? Was it Christology, the doctrine of who the Christ is, the work of Messiah, what Messiah came to do, dramatically displayed? Of course, it was all of that, but it was more than that. Lazarus was the friend of Jesus. And when Jesus showed up at his tomb, he lost it. He cried like a baby, heaving to breathe, water running out of his eyes and his nose to match the pain and the anger pouring out of his heart. It wasn't just an object lesson in the powers of Christ, though that's never far removed. Jesus raised Lazarus, it was an activity of love for the one he loved. Jesus raised Lazarus because he loved him. And if you miss that, you might as well push Lazarus back into his tomb. If you miss that, you might as well close the covers of your Bible like a sealed up mausoleum and not read Ephesians chapter 2 at all. Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus be gracious to people like us? Oh, because grace isn't just making dead things alive. There's more to it than that. Grace is making dead things alive from love. It's in verses 4 and 5. But God, who's rich in mercy, He has a wealth of it an inexhaustible treasury of mercy to pour out on you. God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved you brought us to life up out of death together with Christ even when we were living as dead things, as good as dead, dead through our trespasses and sins. The verses are saying He wasn't obligated to do it He wasn't forced to do it. He wasn't tricked into doing it. He wasn't hounded into doing it. He's made you alive in grace from love. His grace is loving dead things out of their deadness. A few Sundays past, we were getting ready for Gail Jones' memorial service that afternoon. We just finished eating lunch We were all sitting at the table and my daughter asked me, why do we do funerals anyway? You know what those questions are like. They're the questions that have always been there just below the surface, but finally somebody has the courage to put them into words. And if you make your living from words, it's at moments like that that you realize just how flimsy your words are. And on the spot, I did my best to answer I said, we have funerals because we can't pretend that a life never happened. And that it meant nothing to us. That it had no value to us. We're we're having this funeral as a celebration because 
Gail was loved by us, and she loved us in return. And if I could get that conversation back, I think I'd add to my answer. We have funerals because love won't let death win. And that's also why grace breaks in. Love can't let death win. When death breaks in, we go out to meet it in all of its ugliness and strength with the only thing that's stronger, the love of Jesus. And it's this love of Jesus determined to overcome death where it ambushes us that explains why in all the stories where Jesus raises people out of their death, like Lazarus, his friend, or the little girl in Mark chapter 5, Jesus in each case says they were only sleeping, which is terribly confusing at first. It's not that Jesus is diminishing death's effect on us. He's diminishing the power of death next to his own power. That when he brought his stronger strength up against the full strength of death, it would be like waking the dead from a nap. And to see the way Jesus is rough with death, to see the way he puts death in a submission hold time after time after time, You start to get at the full insult of death. You start to get a sense of why death is such a bitter enemy. At why Jesus wept outside Lazarus' tomb just before he raised him. Why Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane and wept on the cross as he wrapped himself in our death. It's because... Death wants to remove us from love's reach. That's the insult. And love won't let it happen. Love breaks through with the hilarity of resurrection. Love refuses to be held back. And that's where Paul fills out his definition of grace for us. Grace is dead things made alive from love to be loved. He brings us out of death Because He loves us in order to continue to love us. Love aches in absence. It rejoices in closeness. It can't have too much closeness. It's the theme in all great literature. An interruption to love is threatened. Can it be avoided? Can it be fought through or solved or straightened out? It's why Odysseus sails home after the Trojan War for a decade with Neptune trying to sink his boat, while other suitors are in his palace at home in Ithaca trying to convince his queen to chalk him up for dead and marry one of them. It's why Orpheus bets all for love and descends to the underworld to square off against Hades to get Eurydice back after she stepped on a snake while dancing in the field during their wedding day. It's why Romeo and Juliet defy their feuding families and they run off to meet, refusing to let the names Capulet and Montague and a long-standing squabble keep them apart. But the love that dazzles me in all of literature is the love that's painted in 
Narnia of all places. I'll tell you, I can't figure out why parents, especially in our age of over-parenting, allow their kids to read these books. It doesn't make sense. Because you know who's not important in these books? Parents. And neither is romantic love for the most part. At least in the case of four siblings, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, they are loved and captivated by a larger love, one that can't be pushed away. And it pulls them into its world. And this love overcomes betrayal and hatred and dragon skins and dangers and dark enemies of all kinds. This love keeps pushing them to grow up in challenging ways. And at the same time, it keeps pulling them closer. It's the love of a Savior in the shape and form of a lion named Aslan that keeps calling them and reaching for them and changing them. And Paul is saying, the love of your Savior does the same. Jesus loves you with His grace to make you alive out of your former deadness in order to love you even more. And His grace is determined to push you to grow and change, sometimes uncomfortably, sometimes painfully, but He's always pulling you closer. And that's the mystery of verse 10. You are His workmanship. He raised you from the dead in order to love you by making you like Himself. He raised you from the dead in order to love you by giving you His good works, the works He enjoys and takes pleasure in doing. And you should do them with Him. It's a perfect answer to the way the passage opens. Your trespasses and sins are replaced with His good works working in you now. Now, if you stack all of this up, it sounds like tremendously good news. But there's one catch. Theology collides with reality in verses 2 and 3. Because Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Ah, if it weren't for that pesky past tense, it would all be fine, wouldn't it? If only Paul had put it in future tense, we wouldn't even blink. One day this will all be true of you. But that's not what he says. He says it differently. And my problem with what these verses say is that I feel like the verses should read, I still walk, I still live in the deadness and trespasses and sins that are mine. That's not how Paul writes it. And here's what he's saying. If you're going to hold on to your anger, and if you're going to pick at the scabs of old wounds to keep them open and sore and bleeding, in some cases, 
carrying on one-sided arguments inside our heads and hearts for years. And if you're going to let the mistreatment of enemies define you and shape you and rule over you, and if you're going to be bullied by your fears, the things you're most afraid of, they just seem too big and too strong for you to ever push them away. And if complaining and discontent are your favorite sports, and if you like to argue because you like the sound of your own voice, you always have a point to make, but oddly nobody seems to come to life in the things you say. And if you're fighting to make a name for yourself instead of trusting Jesus to give you a name more beautiful than any name you could ever earn on your own, a name like saint or faithful or chosen to just name a few from the letter as we've heard them already. And if you're resentful because others won't do what you want them to do, they won't be what you want them to be, or you're frustrated because others won't help you achieve your lusts, or if you're convinced of your own righteousness and there is a delicious superiority in judging the unrighteousness of those around you, or if your home is run by martial law, not tenderness and compassion, where the weak are loved in their weakness instead of being harassed out of it, or if you keep expecting some false god to give you life through your stomach or your eyes or your wallet instead of trusting Jesus to make your heart alive. Or if you entertain a continuous storyline in which you cast yourself always in the role of the victim and never the perpetrator. Always the whistleblower, but never the confessor. And if you like to talk about forgiveness, but you can't remember the last time you practiced it. If the thought of being offended and not taking some kind of vengeance or warped justice just doesn't make sense to you. If you can't imagine being deeply offended and wanting to bury that offense, to put it to death just for the joy of watching an offense die, Or if you're a skeptic who holds on to your skepticism and unbelief, even though secretly you may be coming to believe in Jesus, but in skepticism there's a certain power, there's a control, giving yourself into the hands of another, giving yourself over to be loved by another, that's risky, isn't it? All you have to do to hold on to all these cancers of the heart and the soul All you have to do in order to allow yourself to be eaten away by these things is reject the grace that God insists on. Deny it. Refuse it. Denounce it. Dismiss it. When the voice of Jesus calls, Lazarus, come out. I want you out here with me. Grace doesn't intend for you to fill your dead lungs with one last dusty gasp and at the top of them scream out a deadening no. Grace doesn't expect that at all. And it's because grace isn't lacking anything, but our faith certainly is. Somehow we just don't believe that Jesus loves us. 
And so we try to stay dead and we try to stay down. And that's why we hole ourselves up in our tombs, refusing to be pried out of them. That's why we cling to our own headstones and we believe the words carved as our epitaphs, the words of death and deadness, more than we believe the word of his gospel. But Jesus believes the power of his gospel to raise you. Grace calls And faith comes out. And that's why Paul writes, Once you were dead, and once you walked in trespasses and sins, and you want this to be true more than anything else, you want to walk out of your own death, and you want to be changed. Not perfect, but significantly different. Walking a different way, a different road, with with relapses, of course. Reverting back to the old Patterns of deathness and deadness, but quickly recalled to the road of grace and love and resurrection again. And nothing has changed. Jesus still stands outside the tombs we hide ourselves in and cower in, and he still calls to you, Lazarus, come out! But this time, don't just hear his voice. This time, Hear the weight of authority and love in his voice. Lazarus, come out. My love for you is not in there. Lazarus, come out. My love for you is out here. When my mother was a teenager, one of her friends from school was the mortician's daughter. And two or three times a year, the undertaker would let his daughter invite a handful of friends to have a slumber party in the funeral home. Now, there were a few conditions for this. There could never be a body in the funeral home waiting for a viewing that would obviously be disrespectful and upsetting for the family. And the slumber parties could be interrupted without any notice because that's how death comes. It was an accident out on the highway or a mishap up at the lake or someone hanging on for dear life in a hospital wing finally gives up and lets go. It's not hard to imagine a slumber party being interrupted that way, is it? In fact, that's the way we're used to thinking and it's what we expect to happen more than anything else. Death interrupts life. But Paul says... Believe it or not, there's something far stronger than death. Believe it or not, there's something bigger and better. There's something more. There's something harder to believe. But if you can believe it, it will turn the way you see the whole world on its ear. Grace is love interrupting your death. Don't hold on to your deadness. Turn it loose. Lazarus, come out. And walk in my love for crying out loud. Lazarus, come out. And I hope more and more that we'll see each other and live together outside of our tombs. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, this is true of us. We believe that our death and our deadness is stronger than your love, your gospel, your life.
and we need you to pull us out of it. Wrench us from our error. Pry us from our unbelief. Cause our hearts to need the grace that makes dead things alive from love to be loved more than anything else. And give to us this simple profession of faith that grace calls and faith answers. Faith comes out. Whatever our particular deadness may be, You, King Jesus, who stands with your feet on the necks of every awful enemy, every imprisoning power, call us with your authority out from under each of those pinning powers. and Let us live willfully unburied and free. And allow us to know the joy of being your workmanship, leaving the deadness of trespasses and sins now to walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us. The good works that you yourself love to perform. And allow us to enjoy your love to us and sharing in these good works with you. And as you remake us, as you recreate us, make our hearts strangely more alive than we have ever known And allow us to see how easy it is to cling to death instead of trusting the Savior who stands outside our tombs and calls us to come out. Now as we eat and drink, as we come to the table with faith, we pray that you'd open your grace to us once again for all of our crimes, for all of the things we've done, for all of the ways we've not believed you over the last week, the last month, the last year. We beg your forgiveness. And now assure us that all that's required for our reconciliation has been accomplished by Christ. And all that's demanded of us now is to follow after him in faith and belief depending upon His grace for all that we receive. And if you'll feed us in these ways, then we will truly be filled. Now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.